Amen. Good to be with you today, of course, as always. You know, one of the things that really bugs me in life is when people misunderstand me. And I'm sure you experience the same thing. It's like, how in the world did you think I would think that or would intend that? And we want to be understood. Now, for me and for you, part of the misunderstanding, I can always go, well, I probably didn't communicate clearly enough, or maybe I was inconsistent, or maybe they're right and I am just a jerk. Um, All of those are possibilities. But it helps me when I see that Jesus was probably the most misunderstood person in the history of the world, and he was perfect. There was never an inconsistency. There was never a devious undercurrent or anything like that. But how frustrating it must have been for Jesus that he spent his adult life basically trying to communicate to people, this is who I am. You've got it all wrong. You've got God all wrong. You have me all wrong. But in fact, much of what he did was to try to address the misunderstandings concerning him. Now, we've come to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We've all through the book of Matthew, Matthew has been presenting the story of Jesus from a Jewish perspective because he wanted the Jews to understand who Jesus was and how it was likely that they missed him. And so, and Jesus spent his ministry trying to correct misunderstandings. We come to chapter 21, it's almost over. This is the first day in the last week of Jesus' life. He would be dead in five days. And yet we see, and in chapter 21, there's a lot of things crammed together. We're not going to be able to read the whole chapter, but we'll go through it. Because it's an example of one misunderstanding after another when it comes to Jesus. And I would suggest to you that since Matthew was written, it's not any more clear to people who Jesus was than it was then. I think Jesus is still one of the most misunderstood characters in all of history. And we'll talk about that, but let's jump into the chapter. It starts with what we call the triumphal entry. And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And he tells the disciples, go get me a donkey and I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives, there's a little road that winds down. If you've been to Israel, you've no doubt walked down that road. And it heads over across the Kidron Valley to the east gate of Jerusalem. And so he's going that way. Historically, when a king was coming to a city in peace, he would ride a donkey. He would ride a white horse if he was just going to kill you right now. But a donkey meant, I'm coming and entering. They were probably kind of confused as to why he was doing this. But here is Jesus. And it's a popular move because they were waiting for him to take over. They were waiting. They believed he's going to be Messiah. He's going to be king. He's going to kill the Romans. He's going to take over. And finally, we will have the kingdom that we deserve, the kingdom that the Old Testament prophesied that we would have. So they're excited. They are, you know... um, crying out in verse 9, while they had, it said that 
He got on the donkey and people were putting their clothes on it for a saddle, clothes in the road. They were putting down palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, waving palm branches. And they were singing out in verse 9, quoting scripture, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were acknowledging as by quoting the Psalms, it's like, he's the king, here he comes. The word Hosanna in Hebrew means save now. So basically that's their perspective. This is it. Now is the time. We're finally going to win. We're finally going to see Jesus sitting on the throne. Now they didn't understand. He was heading down to Jerusalem. He would be dead in five days. He had told them that, but they didn't get that. Well, all they understood was, yeah, we win. This is it. We've got it. But they weren't patient enough to say, he did say some things about dying and rising from the dead, and then we'll see what happens. No, they were like, this is it. This is the time. And so he had a lot of fans. If you tell people that now is the time, it's pretty easy to whip them up into a frenzy. Because at least if it doesn't work, they don't, it doesn't last long. Most of these people bailed on him within a few days. But their perspective was wrong. He came to die. They thought that he just came to conquer. They didn't understand that the way he was going to conquer was by dying, was by making it possible for people to be forgiven. So the first misunderstanding, and of course the Jewish leaders totally didn't get it at all. And so as you'd expect, when Jesus got to the temple, he didn't, which was just there through the east gate, they didn't understand what he did next either. It says when he went into the temple of God and he drove out, this is verse 12, all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus came in the temple. Now, the temple was a huge operation. You have to understand you need certain resources in order to make something large like that really function. And so everyone had to have a sacrifice. You waited in that long line. And what if your animal was found to be, have been blemished in the rush of moving to Jerusalem. Well, they would sell you a perfect, already approved sacrifice, lamb or dove. And so it seemed convenient and well worth the price. People were happy to pay it. Also, you're going to put money in the offering. You couldn't use Roman money, but that's what they lived on. So you, could, you had to use temple money, which was a special, kind of almost a souvenir coin that the Jews sold there. And you had to give them a certain amount of money in exchange for a certain amount of the acceptable money. So they're just helping people do what they came to do. But Jesus looked at it and he goes, this is so far away from what what my house is supposed to be. This place is supposed to be about worshiping me. And it's supposed to be about prayer. And you've turned it into a swap meet. You've turned it into where everything is for sale and everything, you, everybody gets a cut. And well, it costs a lot to do the work of God. And he just went and knocked everything over. 
See, they, and then as you read on in the temple, they came and, and he started healing people. And then there were a bunch of kids in verse 15 crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Guys in the temple were like, kids don't yell in the temple. That's horrible. This is a mess. This is nonsense. And so they were rebuking the kids. But Jesus is like, haven't you ever read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Quoting the Psalms, it's like, you guys don't understand the first thing about worship. That kids yelling in the temple is more about worship than you selling your stuff to try to help people. You've got your book tables and you're selling your tapes and tracks and you're marketing everything and here's your picture and your promotion and it's all about money. These little kids yelling are much closer to what this temple is supposed to be about than you guys doing business. See, they had turned it and you could argue that they were probably kind of well-meaning in a way, but they had become confused to where they thought that the best way to really be faithful to God is to organize this thing, is to turn it into a viable marketing alternative, is to make sure that it's paying for itself, to make sure that we are doing things efficiently. And of course, we deserve a cut if we're going to do this. And Jesus is like, you don't even understand what this place of worship is about. Their misunderstanding corrected by him. Well, then as we go on in the chapter, he went out for the evening and then he was coming back toward the city and he was hungry. And in verse 19, he saw a fig tree by the road and he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And the disciples were like, what was that about? Why, why would you curse a fig tree just because it doesn't have figs? It has leaves. That shows promise. I mean, the thing is still alive. What's the big deal about, okay, so you didn't get your fig newton today. You can get something else to eat. They're selling stuff in the temple already again. You know, you'll be fine. You can get a sandwich. But he was trying to explain to them. Now, the fig tree, biblically, is often a symbol of the nation of Israel. So he was symbolizing much more than just this. But the point that he was making is, I'm not in the business of producing leaves. I don't just want life. I want fruitfulness. I want productivity. They didn't understand that. They, they, didn't, they thought that, hey, we're here. Look at all the people who are here. Isn't this great? And he was saying what he had <clears throat> tried to communicate over and over again, and he still tries to communicate to people. I want to see fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no reason for you to exist. And so, again, he's running contrary to what their perspective was. He had constantly assailed the Jewish religious leaders because there was no fruit in their life. They didn't care about people. They just cared about rules. And so he uses the fig tree as a picture of that and go, yeah, just another thing that you've got wrong. And so then uh, when he came into the temple again in verse 23, the Jewish religious leaders confronted him and they wanted to have a debate. They thought, you're on our turf. 
We do debates all the time. You seem like a smart guy. Let's have an argument in front of everyone. What they really thought is when they win the debate, then they'll have a reason to kill Jesus, which is what their real intention was. So they confronted him as he was teaching in verse 30 uh, or in verse 23 or 33 and said, 23 and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They thought, we're going to put him on the spot. Okay, you're saying things, you're doing miracles. I want you to tell us that you're God. I want you to tell us that God is behind everything that you're doing. Because then, we've baited the hook, we're going to cut you, and then we're going to have every reason that right inside the temple, you were saying that you were God. Because that's what you've been implying, and we're going to trick you. And Jesus said to them, "Uh, I'll ask you one thing, I have a question. If you answer me, I'll answer you. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they're like murmuring among themselves. And they realized if they say, oh, John the Baptist was speaking for God, then Jesus would be able to go, then why did when he baptized me, why did he say that I was the Messiah? So they're like, we can't say that. But what they really thought was John was a nut. But then they thought, if we say that, the people are going to kill us because people still love John. John had been popular while he was alive, but then he was killed by the Romans, which made him a total hero to the Jews because the Jews hated the Romans. The Romans were the ones who killed John the Baptist. So they were in a quandary. And they're like, well, we'd rather not answer your question. And he said, then fine. I'm not going to tell you where I'm from. And they were like, oh man, I thought we had them. (laughs) Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They thought that they could bait Jesus. In fact, they thought that he would love, he's a smart guy. He has a lot of people following him. He's very logical. And they thought there's nothing he would like more than to debate us. Jesus was never into debating people. He was, you don't see him getting into arguments with people. Jesus was like the worst apologetics expert ever because he wasn't interested in debates. They thought he was. And I'm sure the disciples were like, oh, good, he's going to really show them. And then they hear what he said and they're like, well, it's a clever way to get out of a debate, but how come you didn't put him in their place? He could have, he could have made them disappear. But he's like, no, I'm not playing that game. And again, Jesus was expected to be one way. Turns out he wasn't like that at all. They completely misunderstood him. Now as you go on, he tells a story. And in verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And the son answered, I will not rebellious kid but afterwards he felt bad and he went then he came to the second son a little kiss up and he goes uh go work in the field and he goes i go sir but he did not go which of the two did the will of his father and they said well i guess the one that ended up going and jesus said to him assuredly i say to you that tax collectors and harlots 
enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So he goes, you think that somebody who's a good starter is important. Like, yeah, ever since you guys were little kids, you studied the Old Testament. You learned the law. You've been good. You would never rebel like, oh, these sleazy people, like these crooked people. And so therefore you think you're better than they are. But some of them have lived a horrible life, destructive life, taking advantage of others, hurting others. Doing it. But in the end, they come and say, I want to follow you. And he said, ultimately, they end up in the right place. You end up in the wrong place. Because like you learn to say, yes, 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 but you're phonies. And you didn't come through when ultimately God sent his son. But these people, they get it. And so another area of misunderstanding, most people, and certainly these guys, thought that getting a good start is the most important thing ever. It really isn't. How you start isn't that big of a deal. I mean, if you think about it in people's lives, there are some people who start out really poorly and end up great. There are other people who start up great and end up poorly. And Jesus is letting them know, don't think because you've been so good that that matters. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. It's the one who follows through on their commitments And that's what you're not doing. And then he really comes after him with another story. And in his his last story, he says, here's another parable. He always told stories. These are great. He said, there was a certain landowner, verse 33, who, who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, prepared the the vineyard perfectly, and he leased it to vine dressers went into a far country. So he hired people who could then run the vineyard and all they had to do was give him a percentage of the, when, when the grapes were harvested, he, they would give that to him as payment and they'd be able to have their own little enterprise and, and do fine. But he said, now when vintage time drew near, the owner sent his servants to the vine dressers so they could get the fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned one. So again, he sent other servants. I'd feel really bad if I was in the second group. So we're going because the guys that went before got killed and tortured. But they went. It's just a story. Get over it. He sent other servants, more than the first. And they killed him too. And then finally he sent his son and he said, you go tell them. They'll respect you. You're my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected 
has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He goes on to say, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. All you guys that think you're so great, you have not only killed the prophets, the people who God has sent to you, you've tortured and killed all of them, and now he has sent his son, and you are just about to do the same to me. See, they misunderstood him. They had no idea that he was truly not only a prophet, They probably questioned that. See, they thought his theology was off. They thought he was blasphemous. They had all kinds of ideas about him. But he's making it clear to them, what you are doing is you are killing the owner of the vineyard. You're killing the one to whom you owe everything. And he's not going to put up with it. So in each of these cases, in each of these stories, and again, this is all... You know, in the first two days of the week where he would end up being killed, all of this is happening. They are experts, and they have one idea of God and of what Messiah would look like. And Jesus comes along and he goes, I am nothing like what you thought I was. Now, obviously, this is why they rejected him, because of these misunderstandings. But I would suggest to you today that Jesus is still one of the most misunderstood people anywhere, including by people who claim to follow Jesus, including people who love Jesus and have received him. It's so hard to comprehend someone like Jesus. It's so easy to misunderstand him because of some of the same reasons why they misunderstood him. So let's just think through this a little bit, what he said, and ask ourselves, is it possible that I have some misunderstandings myself about Jesus sometimes. Well, the first misunderstanding we saw on that, you know, Palm Sunday, the idea that this is the time, save now, Hosanna. Do it and do it now. It's, It's one thing to be always ready for Jesus when he comes. It's another thing to always believe that it's right now. And I think in the same way that, that they couldn't understand that, that when they, uh, there are people today who, I mean, I know from when I really be, gave my life to the Lord, began walking with him, I didn't think there was any way that Jesus wouldn't come back and rapture the church within a few years. Certainly by 1980, you know, Israel had become a nation, 40 years, minus seven for the tribulation, 1980, that's it. And I was sure, I mean, Kissinger, he's the Antichrist. Or, you know, other people before me thought Hitler was, and later Javier Solana. But so much drove me with the idea that it's going to be now. And I was just so happy that I'm not going to have to go through suffering. In fact, honestly, I was really happy that I wasn't going to have to get old. Because getting old is like, who wants to do that? You know, I always thought, if somebody's over 50 and they get sick, why, why do you even bother helping them you know but I'm 69 now and I'm I still feel that way honestly but why am I here but see always expecting and that's where people today anything happens in the news this is proof and over and over again I grew up watching people say this is it see within I remember one pastor who I love saying, within five years 
if Russia and China don't get together and invade Israel, then I don't know what to believe of all in life. It was, it was really worked good for about four and a half years. Then you're like, wait, is this going to be real? And for many of us, we see events happening, but the kind of save now mentality is the same mentality that is causing people today to look at the paper and think, okay, somehow the Ukraine war, how is that tied in to biblical prophecy? Why? Because we want him to get it on. We want him to get it going. We expect it to happen immediately. And I believe, make no mistake about it, Jesus could come at any time, and I'll be really happy if I live to see it. And if it happened today before third service, I'm just glad I got to preach the second service. You know? But no, I, I'm like, I'm ready for him to come. But at the same time, if Jesus doesn't come for a thousand years, what does that mean? That he's a liar? No, Peter made it clear. He goes, some of you guys are accusing Jesus of slacking off because he hasn't come back yet. And that was after like 40 years. He said, he isn't slack concerning his promise, but he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter said, and then he goes on to say, for him, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. God's not in a hurry. He wants to rescue more people. So to me, it's like if Jesus comes back today, it means he's done. That's awesome. I'm going to be with him. But if he doesn't come back for a thousand years, it means he loved a whole lot more people than I could have ever imagined. And I could ask here, and you could just ask within your heart, how many of you got your life right with God since 1980? And I would say, you're part of the reason why he didn't come in 1980 when all the prophecy conferences had it set up perfectly for him. But he, his heart's bigger than we think. And so I'm still, I am absolutely great if he comes back this week. But I am also absolutely great if he doesn't come back for a thousand years. Because for him, it just means saving more people and loving more people. And I'm okay with that. But I am not going to rush God. I try the best I can to not push the envelope of, come on, God, do it now. Save now, Hosanna. Because I understand their perspective. And Jesus is like, save now. And if you only knew what was going to happen, if you only knew the kind of pain and suffering, the fact that many of you will be martyred because of this Save now, I'll save when it's time to save. But right now, the best thing I can do to save people is to die for them. And so I think today, we need to, when we start looking at the paper, thinking it's going to tell us what's going to happen next, we're having the same misunderstanding about the heart of God and about Jesus. So, but also when it comes to the house of worship, when it comes to the place where he is honored. I, I mean, could, and I'm not saying bad about anyone, but it's so easy to turn a place of worship into a commercial enterprise. It's so, because, oh, you get people whose hearts are open to God, like the people who are coming to the temple. It's easy to make a few bucks off of them. What does it hurt? Sell them a few books, a few tapes, they get, you know, support something, and, and then I can promote people, which then gives people a bigger platform, and they... 
I don't think that Jesus today, looking at the state of the church, would be any more impressed than he was then. That what they were doing was cheesy compared to the professional way that people use, well, as, as Peter, in talking about false prophets, he said the first sign of a false prophet is with feigned words. That means like faking it, like, Dave, I've been praying for you this week that I get in the email every day. With feigned words, you make merchandise of the people. Now, I'm not against all you know, exchanges of money and things like that. When it comes to ministry, we couldn't do ministry without money. But at the same time, we have to beware of people who ultimately it may have started with just wanting to do good work, but it ends up becoming about how big and huge and commercial and successful you can make your enterprise. I would say that we haven't, the church of Jesus Christ has certainly exceeded the temple that he kicked the tables over in um, today. And it's because we still don't understand him. That it's not, he's not impressed by that kind of stuff. So um, I'm thankful for so much of the good that's done by billion-dollar corporations. But I also think that Jesus would have some kicking to do when he comes back in terms of the way that huge amounts of money are being shifted and handled and all that. But it's just me. I, I really don't intend to judge anyone, as I will say later in the chapter. But so then, and besides that, too, remember, he didn't like the commercialization, but he loved hearing kids yelling and worshiping him. This week, we had VBS for four days. It was amazing. I can only take so much of, of the noise, but I was sitting in here as kids are screaming, singing praises to God. And I couldn't help but think, man, these hundreds of kids who are screaming and yelling and having a good time, that Jesus would go, that's what it ought to sound like. Not a bunch of old people sitting there, not making any noise. It's, it's about kids. Kids are the important thing. I suspect that, and a lot of people, you know, VBS is a way to commercialize it and charge money for it and everything. We didn't charge anybody. We didn't want anybody to not be able to come. So it's just something we do because VBS might be the most important thing that we do as a church. It might be more important than international missions. It might be more important than paying a pastor. It might be more important than all sorts of other things. And so Jesus is like, yeah, I don't relate to all the professionalism but I love hearing kids yelling in church. I love hearing kids yelling in the temple. That's why what happens out on the deck probably more important than what happens here. I remember my pastor used to say that children's ministry is basically a way to babysit the kids so that you can minister to the parents. I look at it the opposite. Being in here is a way to keep adults busy so that their kids can actually do what God has called them to do. So, uh, But that's... Jesus understood that in a way that certainly they didn't. Um, the, the, the cursing of the fig tree. I, I think in evangelicalism, which is kind of what most of us are, we came out of, you know, there was Catholicism and the Orthodox Church and then the Reformation in the Middle Ages and then evangelicalism kind of flowed out of that. And evangelicalism puts a huge emphasis on getting people saved. Like something that the Bible doesn't say a lot about, but we act like the most important thing, have you accepted Jesus Christ or not? And 
I, I tell people to do it every week. I certainly believe in that. But here's the thing. Is it really about getting in the door? Or is it about what the fruit that comes out of your life? You get a bunch of people who believe in Jesus, but they're jerks. That means nothing. That's like there's no figs on your tree. Your tree is made out of leaves. It's just decorations. It's just production. It's just appearances. And Jesus would go, it's about fruitfulness. And it's so important that we make sure that we call ourselves to say, what fruit is actually coming out of my life, not what do I believe? Because if you want to be all about what you believe, the demons believe and tremble, the Bible tells us. Their theology is fine. They get it. No fruitfulness. And so with this fig tree, we're going to be tested as well. And again, John makes it really clear. You can say all the right things, but if you don't love people, you're not a child of God. It's as simple as that. The test of fruit. And so he reminds us of it here. The debate that they tried to suck him into. For many of us, we think that you know, being a Christian means winning arguments. I always thought like this growing up, and when I became a Christian, I just, I would love to argue with Paul. Give me an atheist, give me a Mormon, give me a Democrat, whatever. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll take care of you. And I've, I've discovered that I've won a lot of arguments. In fact, I win them all because I'm the judge of who wins. But in the end... Did I ever win a person when I won an argument? No, not at all. I've had a chance to lead some people to Jesus who grew up in really, uh, you know, areas that we would consider to be cult-like. They believed all kinds of crazy stuff. But it was never because I proved to them that they were idiots. It was always just because of the way I accepted them and drew them in. And I, I refuse to argue. I don't argue with anybody. I don't argue with Calvinists. I don't argue with Catholics. I don't argue with anybody because Jesus didn't. And whether you could win an argument, winning an argument means losing the people, it's way better just to avoid arguments. By the way, it's the same thing in a marriage. You win an argument, you lose. You avoid an argument, you live to argue another day. But... <laughs> But if we represent Jesus, should we be those who are always arguing? That's the question. And I think he would certainly tell us, yeah, that's not really who I am. But then also with the guy with the two sons and how Jesus said, some of the people who started really bad end up pretty good. I mean, when we make such an emphasis on how you start, we should be waiting and seeing how the story ends. Some of the people who God has used amazingly started out really bad. At the same time, there are some people who started out being perfect, and eventually they started thinking for themselves, and they began to deconstruct their faith, and some of them decide they don't believe at all. But you're still going to look back and go, you know, he was such a great kid. Just wait. Give it time. It's how you end. There are some of you that think, your life has failed in such big ways, whether, like Jesus uses the example, you used to be a prostitute or an IRS agent, and you just think, I just can't do anything anymore. He goes, end the story well. 
do, it doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter how you failed. I mean, this goes the same way in a marriage. You, you mess up a marriage, and now you have another shot at it. You can't worry about what's happened in the past. Learn, learn lessons and try to do better. If you, if you were a bad parent, try to be a better grandparent. It's how you finish that matters, not how you started. And I think for many of us, we just think that, oh, you did that, now you're disqualified completely. You just can never, it's just too bad that you wasted your life because you failed. Jesus goes, now, all I care about is how the story ends. Now, in this final parable with the landowner, I, Jesus was cert- clearly you know, alluding to the fact that he had sent prophets, and those prophets had told them things about God, and a lot of it they didn't understand. Because, let's face it, the prophets were some of the weirdest people in all of history. You have a guy who's like, okay, I'm going to wear a diaper and not change it. And then I'm going to bury it in the ground. Or I'm going to live out in the woods and be all scraggly. And, and I'm going to say things that are so offensive. The biblical prophets were really nutcases in a lot of ways. It seemed like it to people. But they were offensive. And so almost all of them ended up being killed. Because I don't want to hear what you have to say. But God sent them for a reason with a particular message, and they didn't accept it. And the truth is, Jesus came along, and he didn't live up to their expectations either, and they were about to kill him too. So today, I wonder, are we listening for messages that God sends, or are we killing messengers when we don't like the way they present the message or the message that they present? You know, I was... I was reading a biography or an autobiography of Madeleine Lingle this week, and Madeleine Lingle was one of the greatest American writers ever. She was like the female Mark Twain, really, only much smarter. And she wrote fantasy books a lot. She wrote uh, several different kinds of books, but the one she's most known for is A Wrinkle in Time. Madeleine Lingle was a committed Christian always, her whole life, just an amazing lady. But um, her, her husband was more famous because he was a doctor on All My Children. But she was amazing. But her book, like A Wrinkle in Time, was the most banned book in America in, because Christians felt like she's not a good Christian because she's telling fantasy stories that involve supernatural, that have witches and things like that. The same kind of people banned Tolkien books and C.S. Lewis books. And there are so many people. And by the way, if you really want to know what prophet, what messenger God is sending to people, why don't you look at the message and ask, is it something bland and logical and laid out really clearly? Or would it be like Jesus' messages where he's just telling all these stories and you're not sure what he's talking about, but it really makes you think Jesus was a prophet like that, and he sends people like that. And I think of somebody like Madeline who, you know, is just so gifted, and, and I still derive so much from the brilliant way that she communicated the truth of God. I don't agree with everything that she would say, but I think that the way Christians crucified Madeline Langle and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis 
is the same way historically that people have crushed the voice of those who would prophesy, of those who would speak for God in a way that might not line up perfectly with the way you think it should be done. Now, if you think that the way to communicate truth is by going down a list of a systematic theology and having it all right, you have a problem because there isn't anyone who wrote in the Bible. There aren't any of the prophets. And Jesus himself didn't communicate that way. He told stories and you had to think about them. And I would expect that quite often the people that he sent as prophets, we just killed them. We just would not listen to an idea that might contradict something that wasn't even the point of what they're trying to communicate. Now, there are all kinds of people today who are attempting to be messengers for God. Some of them seem a little kooky to me. Some of them, but think about it. Like, you can look at, like, there's a pastor on TV that's like, just everything's positive. And I can listen to him and go, okay, it's kind of weird, it's not my thing. And then I go, listen to how negative I am about somebody for him being too positive. Maybe God sent him to pull me a little in the direction of not being so negative and critical. Maybe he has a message that God wants to share with me. You have other people who are like all the political activists, and I go, come on, that's, that's so dumb. Or so. But it's like, who knows if they aren't a messenger from God, extreme as most messengers of God are, but just to plant seeds that can help complete the picture because I don't want to hear what they're saying, and that's precisely why I need to hear what they're saying. I think we should be really careful. You can be critical of the way that people do certain things, but make sure that you're not crucifying the prophet. But just go, time will tell. You know, they answer to God for whether they're right or wrong. Uh, They may not do it the way I do it. They probably hate the way I do it. That's okay. I'm doing the best I can to be a messenger of God. I'm imperfect, but the perfect messenger of God, Jesus, was still misunderstood all the time. So I should kind of expect that that comes with the territory. But in the end, I'm always wanting to be open. Now, I just don't become a disciple of somebody because they say they're a messenger of God. But I listen to what they have to say and think, I wonder if there's something here that I might learn something from. Again, today, look at us quite often. We are missing what Jesus is saying here. We are misunderstanding who he is as much as they were. And ironically, in some of the same ways. So let's determine to be people who reflect the kind of fruitfulness and love that he calls us to who honor worship that might not fit our particular paradigm, who stop expecting a timeline to what God has to do, and to be people who just go, you know what, your story's not over yet, so I'm not going to judge you until we see how everything comes about in the end. And I'm going to look back at my life and go, there are some truths that I learned from somebody who Today, I would like not tell people to follow that person, but God used them as a prophet in my life for a particular time and in a particular way. So that's, you know, here we are. It's going to happen fast now, the next five days as we motor through these chapters, but how much is it true? 
that the way they misunderstood Jesus then, we still misunderstand him. And we ought to be working on that. It's why this is recorded for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories that were so meticulously recorded so that they wouldn't be lessons just for them. That even if the people then didn't get it, that it was written down so that later others could. Written down probably as these guys got older and began to reflect back on what they missed. Help us to walk in lives of wisdom and help us to be open to seeing you the way you are instead of expecting you to be what we expect you to be. We just want to be faithful to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.